0: Welcome back, Think Free Nation. We are back, and we are right at you again. And on this episode, we are going to be talking about the philosophical topic of epistemology. Now, epistemology is the subject of knowledge. You know, how do do we know anything? How do we know anything at all? Uh, Famously posited by Socrates himself. Um, for which many, many different schools of thought back in the ancient days um, actually claimed him to be their inspiration for their various nuanced views.
1: Is this thing on? It's been a while since we did one of these damn things, eh, Zach? Uh, it's, let me just tell you guys, before we dive too much into the topic, it is great to be recording once again. Your two favorite sophists Z and Z, coming at you, Zach and Zaleski. And you're listening to the ZZ&D Show, or are you? how can you know for sure? And that's the topic of today's episode. We are going to take a journey through thousands of years of epistemological f- philosophy to determine if you actually can know for a scientific objective fact that you are sitting here listening to our podcast right now.
0: Such perhaps just simply presupposes our existence. <laughs> yeah, that's, qu- that's quite a question. Um, do, we, do we exist? What is existence? Um, this is a question, uh, generally very well explored by, uh, the philosopher Martin Heidegger, who is a student of Edmund Husserl, but this isn't an episode on ontology, although I damn love fucking listen- <laughs> listening, listening, uh, reading ontology. My goodness, that's interesting. But, uh, this is a little bit of a better treat for today, and, uh, maybe someday in the, di- uh, not even distant future, but, um, that we could give you a nice little, uh, podcast episode on ontology but um i think a good starting point is uh, socrates himself um socrates is uh, at least a fair bit of a skeptic i would say um one of his fundamental epistemic stances is that we can't know anything at all you know ha- how would you go about your everyday life when you know you you, you, s- you see these composite objects, you see these doors, you, s- you gain all this um, sense information, but you still don't know if you could trust it.
1: Yes, the man himself was famous for once saying, I am the wisest man alive for that I know one thing, and that is that I know nothing. And like you were saying, Zach, it must be a very challenging position to go around everywhere you go and have no definition of knowledge. And for those of you guys that are unfamiliar with the term, epistemology is the study of knowledge and the study of knowledge of knowledge, if that's a little bit confusing or not. But what is knowledge? If we go about our day-to-day lives every single day claiming that we know certain things, and a lot of these things that we claim to know are, as you were saying, presuppositions of previous claims that might not necessarily be uh, founded in logic and able to objectively prove. So, yeah, Socrates, it's very difficult to pinpoint his specific views since everything that we have on him or that we have him quoting of saying is secondary sources namely the platonic dialogue since he himself as an individual never actually wrote anything down unfortunately for us but from what we've been able to trace from uh, what we do have surviving records of his life he was arguably one of the first skeptics and what a skeptic is is basically self-explanatory somebody whose epistemic stance is the fact that we don't necessarily know anything at all, and there's no definition of knowledge that suits our needs.
0: Now, I wouldn't call uh, Socrates like a full-blown skeptic. He's not He's not like Pyro, who, according to legends, went absolutely nuts because he couldn't just know anything. Um, usually, uh, these legends actually have a bit of a... Uh, uh, exacerbation, if you will, of uh, what actually went on. But um, uh, one of the positions of Socrates that follows from this sort of epistemic uh, pessimism is that his ethical stance, which was discovered in the um, uh, quite a few of uh, Plato's doctrines. But uh, one in particular is uh, the Apology, which portrayed his uh, trial. Well, it it really wasn't much of an apology. He actually kind of roasted the jurors and then got sentenced to death. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Does Jesus exist? There you go. But, um, quite a few of the Platonic Dialogues. So, his ethical stance is called Socratic Intellectualism. And the main uh, idea that it puts forward is that no one errs or does wrong willingly. And the sort of substantiation that Socrates gave was um, he gave an example of an evil neighbor, right? He's like, well, the neighbor isn't evil. But um, if he was to um, do wrong by his neighbor, would he be doing so knowingly? Um, Insofar as if he were to do so knowingly, if he was to um, purposely be evil towards his neighbor, um, it would be the case such that, you know, the neighbor might uh,
1: just go back and bonk him on the head. And that's a classic case of uh, Socratic ethics there, the famous doctrine supposedly once uh, (coughs) posited by Socrates himself saying that no man does wrong willingly. And if somebody does something that we consider to be wrong, it's simply because they don't have a solid understanding of the consequences of their actions, and they do believe that what they're doing is in their own best interest. Because if you think about it, why would you willingly do something that you believe is bad and has absolutely no positive consequences for yourself or anyone else. Sure, people do a lot of horrible things, but typically it's for their own self-interest. So if somebody does wrong, then according to Socrates, the only way that we can understand why they did something wrong is because they are believing they're acting right, but their morals don't align with the morals of society. And now this is where it gets a little bit tricky. How do you define morals? And this is how we're tying this all back into uh, epistemology. So for those those of you guys that are unfamiliar with some of the Platonic dialogues, a common theme across almost all of them is Socrates, who is usually the main character, uh, (coughs) meets up with some interlocutors trying to define some virtue, whether it be justice, morality, good, even piety, things like that. And basically over the course of the dialogue, both Socrates and his challenger learn from interactions with each other that neither of them have a solid definition that stands up to a series of tests that they put it to. And then a lot of the time they end up just leaving disappointed knowing nothing more than they did before and having their previous definitions shattered. So in that way you could kind of look at it as uh, some of the earlier skeptic doctrine.
0: Yeah, um, a bit of a note about Plato, though. I'll give a little bit of depth to this. Um, So, there are three different periods of Platonic dialogues. The early period, the middle period, and the late period. And um, in the early period, there's more Socratic doctrine pushed, but towards the middle it gets mixed. And in the later um, Platonic dialogues, they're um, purely Plato. Um, also, um, I'll mention too that um, there was a library um, back in ancient Greece that burned down, and it supposedly it contained a lot, a lot of books that now we do not have access to. You know, how great would it be to just find Heraclitus' book um, on shelves to this day? You know, perhaps um, that Heraclitian book was burned in the fire. Um, happy thoughts, happy thoughts, people.
1: And who knows, maybe somewhere in that library there was a book that gave us a uh, indestructible definition of knowledge that would permanently have solved the epistemic debate that rages to this day. But unfortunately, because that does not exist, we still have um, our degree of skepticism, and then we have some of our more uh, epistemic realists as well. So wh- whether or not objective truth was located in that library or not, it is of no consequence to us now because we still have this problem to solve. And we will probably spend millennia trying to solve it to this day. But b- going back to skepticism, this is a little bit later after um, Socrates and Plato's day. And if we miss anything with those two, then we can be sure to loop back to it later. But an interesting figure is uh, Pyro. Where, where was he from? I don't exactly recall. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. Well, there's very little known about him. Uh, In general, but the one thing that we do know about him is that he was such a uh, radical skeptic that he claimed that individuals in order to live the happiest of lives should have absolutely no beliefs whatsoever because we cannot know anything for sure. And therefore, any consequences of our actions that are based in beliefs would end up being null and void simply because there is no truth to our beliefs. The only problem with that is, is that not a bit paradoxical? Because what is the claim That we should have no beliefs. That in and of itself is inherently a belief. And that's where skepticism ends up (coughs) contradicting itself. But then there were a few skeptics um, later down the line that ended up becoming a little bit more moderate and less radical, but still it's not necessarily satisfying because it's to me it seems as though saying that there's no objective way to define knowledge is a little bit of a cop-out. And (coughs) probably one of the easiest answers without actually addressing the problem of what knowledge potentially might be
0: right so i'll just i'll talk about um the school of skepticism just a little bit here um a little bit later down the line so in the ancient period the skeptics were the farthest thing from moderate so one example of a pretty famous skeptic um, is carneades and he's actually responsible for bringing skepticism to rome so, the story goes that, you know, he, he pulls up to Rome and he's, he's out there to give a big speech, huge speech. You know, there's a big audience, crowd, very excited to hear this brand new, beautiful philosophy about how you can't be certain about anything. So, Carnides, his first speech, um, he praised justice. He praised virtue. And to a thunderous applause of the audience, right? Here's the kicker. The next day he comes back. Completely different speech. Same topic. Contradictory positions. Same thunderous applause. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's pretty funny, guys. (laughs) So, I mean, if you can't be sure about virtue, you can't be sure about morality, you can't be sure about justice... I mean, this is the sort of message that Carneades was putting out to the people. Um, now, if we take this to later periods where the skeptics were a bit more moderate, they weren't trying to get these full-blown skeptic conclusions, they are more or less just trying to get people to question their own fundamental beliefs. We'll come to figures like uh, Rene Descartes. Now... So, I mean, to an extent, he's a moderate skeptic. Um, in the modern period, he's a uh, he's a pretty uh, radical rationalist. Um, so, rationalism is pretty much the position that you can derive knowledge from pretty much your own introspection. Knowledge can be known from introspection alone, and that foils the empiricist position that says, "Wait, hold a minute, hold on a minute." We can only get knowledge through our own experience. So one of the really famous, famous, inspired thousands of pages of commentary was Descartes' famous deceiver argument. And it kind of goes a little bit like this. Um, how do you know there, there was not an evil deity who is actually just beaming all the present thoughts you have in your mind there? Goodness, that's, that's, an, unsettling, uh, that's an unsettling position, guys. And um, Descartes ends up in later in his meditations, and particularly Meditation 3, thwarting the possibility that God can be an evil deceiver. But what does this say about our knowledge of the outside world? I mean, Descartes bracketed all of his prior beliefs in his mission statement at the start of Meditation 1. He was like, all right, well, I can't trust my senses. I can't really trust my mind can't can't really can't really trust much of anything you know all, all these prior foundations of my current knowledge for which it's built and so this is how that very very famous argument came about and eventually in the first meditation he comes to the landmark conclusion i think therefore i am pretty much saying so long as so long as i'm thinking you know this this active minds of mine this introspectable minds is exactly what's grounding him in his view that he exists now he doesn't say that him as a whole exists Um, the the sort of conclusion that's reached is that he's a thinking thing that his mind is a substance separate from his body and that's a proof he's going to give later on in meditation six he uh, distinguishes mind and body res extensa and res cogitans so, probably one of the most interesting modern uh, skeptics. But uh, then you'll come along to someone like David Hume, who, he, he's a skeptic in a bit of a different way. Um, you know, he's coming from a time period where you're seeing Descartes, Le, uh, Leibniz, Spinoza, all these radical rationalists. And he's like, hold on a minute. You can't get knowledge this way. This, this is a little back-ass words. And so... Hume actually came up with a very notable, extremely influential to this day, uh, epistemic position that um, is really um, thrown out by uh, Hume's fork. That's what it's called, Hume's fork. And the proposition goes like this: um, There are only two, th- the only knowledge you can know is ma- are matters of fact and relations of ideas.
1: So taking it way back to Carnide's for a minute, and we've got a lot to discuss here based on uh, everything you just mentioned, Zach, but I think one of the biggest takeaways from evaluating uh, Carnide's speeches is that we can divide epistemology into two uh, subsections, one being knowledge about the physical world and the other being knowledge about abstract uh, social constructs and uh, more conceptual ideas such as virtue knowledge and uh, what-have-you. So for instance, uh, Carnades' argument doesn't necessarily apply to just knowledge about the physical world and in the certain sense of uh, science and perception. For instance, um, do I necessarily know that there's a table sitting in front of me right now? I guess I don't know for sure, but for all intents and purposes, um, <coughs> and this is what some of the later moderate skeptics said, you can be sure enough that certain physical things exist to the point where you can use it for your purposes without having to question it therefore you can hold certain beliefs but the more challenging aspect of it is Carnitas wasn't talking about simple matters of fact like well there's a table sitting in front of me right now he was talking about highly consequential social constructs or maybe they're not social constructs at all maybe they are objective truth but abstract ideas that have huge significance in human all human behavior so isn't it a little bit unsettling if one day you were able to be um, not to say manipulated but convinced that any any form of virtue or idea is a good thing and the next the next day by the same person told that it's not to me that indicates that we don't have a solidified definition of any of these ideas and we are just as apt to be swayed to adhere to one position as we are to another so if that's the case and people are so easily manipulated to the point where they will denounce something uh, vehemently that they were praising yesterday, then how can we be sure that these concepts even exist at all if no one can objectively tell you what they are? If you were telling me that justice is a great thing yesterday and are now denouncing it today, then what is it if it's anything at all?
0: This all goes back to the raging debate from day one about a priori knowledge and a posteriori knowledge. A priori being the proposition of the rationalist and a posteriori being the proposition of the empiricist. Now, this also has given rise to the analytical continental divide we see in philosophy today. So I'll give some examples of both and you know, dive a little bit more into it. But um, so an example of some continental philosophers um, would be Martin Heidegger, as I previously mentioned. Um, Edmund Husserl, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, G.W.F. Hegel. And then on the analytic side, you'll see, well, uh, too, a multiplicity of philosophers, such as um, Popper Quine and um, even, I'd uh, say, uh, what's his face, um, founding father of psychology, uh, Sigmund Freud, very, uh, very influential figure. You know, he was a bit of a philosopher. You know, before uh, psychology got its whole uh, groundwork going, yeah, they were they too were they were just all philosophers. Goes to show um that's where science came from. I mean there are many contradicting views, that's just mine. But um a very uh, character a very important characteristic of this whole analytic continental divide is actually views on epistemology. The continental philosophers don't really try and live up to the rigor and epistemic standards of their time. They're just—they're a lot more concerned with just getting their words and thoughts down. Uh, A lot revolving around the human experience and um, ontology too. You know, Uh, a lot of that too is uh, on the continental side. You know, there's a bit of it on on the uh, analytic side as well. Don't get me wrong. Um, I mean, a lot of positions have their sort of reflection on both sides of the aisle there. But um, another um, big uh, difference is in writing style too. Um a lot of the continental philosophers are more like novelish, a little more romantic in their language. Not romantic as in I love you, z, dearly and uh I want to get married to you. No, no, that that's definitely not uh, what I'm getting at here. But um, <laughs> but, um on the uh on the uh, analytic side of things, um there's a lot more concision in language and a lot more concern for proofs and validations of claims being made. And uh, this all stems from, respectively, um, epistemic pessimism and um, epistemic optimism. The pessimism belonging to the continentals, the
1: optimism belonging to the uh, analytics. Now, I like what you said a minute ago about psychology originally deriving from philosophy, because it's not just psychology. Pretty much all scientific uh, studies and explanations of the natural world did originally once, at a certain point in time, derived from philosophy for the longest time up until n- very recently they were considered one and the same why is that the reason being we didn't have uh, or one of the reasons at least we didn't have um anywhere close to the uh means of measuring uh the physical world with the scientific tools we have our dis- at our disposal right now so it's a lot easier for me right now to look up at the sun through a telescope uh, and conduct some uh, like chemical analysis of it and determine that the sun is a burning uh, ball of gas in the sky that See, consists <laughs> <mine>. <laughs> that consists predominantly of helium, hydrogen, and a few other things. Because now, for th- we say we're able to know that based on um, scientific research that's been conducted. But back uh, three thousand years ago in ancient Greece, they didn't have that knowledge, so all they could do is sit around and speculate and contemplate as to what the sun might be. I think it was uh, Anaximenes or Anaximander that said it was a bowl of fire that was pointed towards us and that was all that they could figure out and not just about the sun but about everything else these explanations of the physical world were one and the same with philosophy and the way this ties back into epistemology is all of those explanations for the most part based on newer research that we've been able to conduct with the more advanced tools of measurement uh, th- everything in the past for the most part dur- turned out to be wrong but now we're convinced or many people at least are convinced that we have achieved the gold standard of scientific knowledge and not just scientific knowledge but all forms of knowledge because the ability for us to measure the natural world is so much greater than it was in the past but my question is who's to say that in the future or perhaps not even too far off in the future but the immediate future um, a new better more accurate form of measurement and it doesn't matter what we're talking about here this is all highly speculative a form of measurement of something in the national world comes along and completely debases a lot of the theories, and that's what they are, theories that we've had for centuries and makes us reevaluate everything. So so epistemically, how can you say that even though philosophy is no longer as closely interrelated with science as it once was, how can you say that we've achieved the gold standard of uh, scientific knowledge now when uh, what we have today has gone and disproved everything from the past, how do we know that won't happen again? And me and Zach were having this same exact argument uh, a few weeks ago at uh, his Scholars Day presentation, which was pretty interesting. I'm sure you guys uh, heard about that.
0: Yeah, so um, Z's referencing um, an anti-realist thesis called the pessimistic meta-induction. And pretty much what it says, it's, um, it was curated by a philosopher named Loudon. And the idea is that um, many of our former scientific theories were wrong. So, you know, it's most likely the case such that our current scientific theories, too, are wrong. Now, in my paper, I have quite a few ways to combat that. Just, for example, one being that, well, Loudon, in in fact, you're just giving us better criteria to select our scientific theories. And also that he's kind of ignoring the fact that a lot of our current scientific theories were built upon a lot of the structures and mathematical formulas of the previous ones. So, I mean, this is a uh, quite an interesting uh, thesis to say the least, and you know, philosophy of science really regards um, how we, how should we be treating our best scientific theories? You know, are are they just instruments for our usage? That's a view called instrumentalism. Are they approximately true? Um, a view held by scientific realism are just the structures of these unobservable entities posited by our best scientific theories, can we only know their structures? That's a view called um, structural realism, uh, notably held by a philosopher named Worrall. And uh, another example of like a scientific realist would be uh, Silos. So, I mean, there is, there is tons and tons on the subject matter. And, um, you know, soon after, I'll actually talk way more about my thesis on the show, uh, given that I think it could shake up the scientific uh, debate in, in this respect uh, quite a bit. But um, this, this is my IOU note for you guys. Um, I know you'll probably enjoy that content once I get around to explaining all these different terminologies, as, you know, definitions are really important. You know, back back in the days of the ancients, uh, you know that that was their favorite thing to do. Um, there was one very notable story. Um, so you know, Plato, Plato and the boys, they're sitting around cracking a cold one, and uh, they're they're questioning their definitions of things. Oh, jolly good, jolly good. And um, the, Plato came up with a definition of man: bipedal and featherless. Now all uh, they're pretty content with themselves, patting themselves on the back. Oh, good job, Plato! Oh, thank you, Xenophon. I actually don't know who else is there. I'm just naming names of historical figures. But then bursts in Diogenes the Cynic, who just plucked a chicken featherless. <laughs> Diogenes was kind of a funny figure at the time. He he lived in a bowl. Not even kidding. One day he thought he got so materialistic that he actually just put his bowl in a river and walked away. He lived in a tub. But his only possession was a bull. What a guy. He he too, he actually never like wrote any books or anything. He was just kind of an absurdist, in a way. Um another really dark story. Um Well, I mean, there there's this two interpret they're not interpretations, it's two versions of the story. The second one's a bit more dark, but yeah, I'll I'll go over it real quick. So this guy named Alexander the Great. I don't. I don't know if you heard of him. Pretty, pretty uh, irrelevant. <laughs> so he he famously took a bit of a liking to Diogenes. Um, he he went out when he was uh, on his conquest to actually find the guy, and so when they actually came face to face with each other, um, Alexander the Great uh, come, comes across Diogenes the Cynic, and he's he says to Diogenes. Uh, Wow, Diogenes, well, is there anything I can do for you? Diogenes looks up, sunbathing, and he's like, Get out of my sun. To which Alexander replies, Wow, if I were not Alexander the Great, I would like to be Diogenes. To that, Diogenes replies, If I were not Diogenes, I too would like to be Diogenes. And there's also um, that darker version of the story, which I had just mentioned. Um, Alexander the Great, in this uh, in this uh, version of the story, he comes up to him. Uh, Diogenes is digging through a pile of bones, of all things. And he's like, hey, Diogenes, what you doing, my man? Digging through a pile of bones. I was trying to find the bones of your father, but... I couldn't distinguish the bones of that from the bones of slaves. Now, if you recall, Alexander the Great's father was actually a king.
1: (laughs) Good grief. And I think epistemically, uh, tying it back to the uh, topic at hand here, what we can take from the stories of uh, Diogenes is, I mean, this guy was basically just a weird, eccentric man uh, some even would consider him to be like the village idiot, so to speak. But this, if this guy can come along and disrupt everything that you thought you knew, um, for instance, even about the definition of man himself, then you've got a problem when it comes to your definitions. And we'll, definitions are a huge part of epistemology, and we'll talk about that in a later episode. Uh, we're coming around on a half hour or so of the show. So this is only part one of our topic on epistemology there will be a hell of a lot more to come considering that if we could solve this millennia old problem in a matter of 30 minutes then we would probably have (laughs) yes there's probably something wrong and we probably have a lot more listeners as well but we don't but for those of you dedicated listeners that we do have please tune back in next time I'm not going to tell you when it is because I personally don't know but whenever it is tune back in and we will continue discussing epistemology on the Z, Z, and d show, if you actually know that it can be called that for sure. Uh, I'm Z. This is the other Z. D's going to be here next time, I promise. And uh, thank you for listening. Goodbye, everybody.